Welcome to the QAV podcast. If you're brand new, I just want to introduce the podcast a little bit so you know what you're getting yourself into. If you've listened to the show before, feel free to just fast forward a minute or two. If you're brand new, here's the deal. Uh, my name's Cameron Riley. Tony Kynaston is an old friend of mine. He's a very successful share market investor. I'm talking very, very, very successful. He's been doing it 30 years. He's one of the best in the country in terms of a private investor. Very good uh, track record over 30 years. And what this podcast is about is Tony basically teaches me everything that he knows about investing in the stock market. And you get to listen. But if you're coming into this for the first time, you'll find that this episode, the current episodes, assume a certain level of prior knowledge. We assume that you know what we're talking about, his system, his methodology, which we explain in earlier episodes. So feel free to listen if you want to get the vibe for what's going on, but some of it's not going to make much sense unless you understand what the checklist is, etc. I recommend if you're brand new, you go back and listen to uh, Season 3, Episode 1, Episode 3 and Episode 5, where we go into Tony's background and his system and his methodology in a lot more detail. And then feel free to listen to the contemporary episodes, the current episodes, you'll understand more of the context of what we're talking about. With that, let's get into today's show. Welcome back to the Welcome Back. Welcome back to QAV. Uh, we've just been recording for like 40 minutes and realized we weren't recording at all, so we're doing it again. <laughs> Luckily, we were interrupted so we could check it. Yeah, we would have kept going. Uh, this is episode 412, recorded Monday, the uh, 22nd of March, 2021, still the 22nd of March. I'm up here in Sydney with Tony sitting in his office, yep. hand on his knee, <laughs> looking out over the uh, rainy, rainy, rainy Sydney. Mm. Uh, we've got a QAV dinner on here in mm-hmm. Sydney tonight. And last night we went to the inaugural Australian Whiskey Awards. Which were great. Which really were great. Them. Thank you, Nico. Yes, my mate Nico Devlin uh, put that on um, and it was a terrific night. Uh, so we were sitting at the table. Uh, sorry, this is banter. Uh, apologies to the people who don't like the banter. But we were sitting at a table. There was one couple that own a resort in Tasmania that we had a lovely chat to. Yep. And then um, there was another guy sitting next to us who sells Rolexes. And, and he, more importantly, has a tequila bar. Yes, Rolexes <laughs> and tequila. And he was he had a $27,000 Rolex on his wrist, which uh, I had a, had a look at. And I asked you if you would spend $20,000 on a watch. And you said... No, <laughs> I don't even wear a watch. <laughs> I get the time off my phone. <laughs> it's cheaper that way. And you also mentioned that you'd heard recently that the Lark Distillery was coming out mm. with a new bottle and you went to place an order and then found out it was how much? $9,000 a bottle. <laughs> uh, and so we... Ended up having a conversation about your attitude towards spending money. I mean, you can afford to buy a Rolex and you can afford to buy a $9,000 bottle of whiskey, but you don't. Correct. When I said you're the least flashiest rich person I've ever met. <laughs> you sounded disappointed when you said that. <laughs> no, I've known you long enough. You said, well, I live in a nice house and I drive a nice car. And I go, well, it's a Mercedes. It's an okay car, but oh, it's not a Lamborghini or a... German Commodore. Yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> what Maserati. 
Uh, why uh, don't you spend more of your money on big bling items? Just it just does not appeal to me. Just I don't know. Just I don't see the sense in it. I really don't. I was trying to figure out: is it because you're trying to be Warren Buffett and drive a 50 year old car and live in a 60 year old house you've lived in for 60 years? Is it a no. is it a financial discipline thing? Is it a mindset? Because I remember when I was telling you to upgrade your MacBook last year, and you're like, ah, oh. you said like, I don't get you don't get rich by spending money. And I've had nothing but heartbreak since I've done that. <laughs> since you got a new MacBook, yeah. yeah. Um, uh, no, but I'm not. I'm not a miser in any sort of way. Right. Uh, like I buy racehorses, as you know. It's my passion. Yeah. And, and play golf and all that and join golf clubs and all that sort of and travel the world. So you're happy to spend your money. Yeah. I'm not like Buffett who says, I can if I you know save on a new car now, that's worth a million dollars in 20 years' time. He wouldn't let his wife buy curtains. Wouldn't, that's right. Yeah. Did the DCF on curtains. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, you could spend $10,000 on curtains today or I could invest that and it'd be worth like a million dollars. So they're a million dollar curtains you're asking me to buy. Correct. I'm not spending a million dollars on curtains. Are you crazy? But his wife never said, when you get the million dollars, can I have curtains? <laughs> he still would have said no problem. Yeah. Yeah, well, I think he had a million dollars, a lot more than a million dollars yeah. when she asked him to <laughs> yeah. buy the curtains. No, no, I like to enjoy life along the way. I mean, that's why I invest. It's to enjoy life. But you just aren't interested in, no. I don't know. Bling. Bling. Rolex watches. Yeah. Yeah. Just doesn't turn, no. float your boat. No, we buy art. You've seen the art now. Yeah, you got a lot yeah. of art. Yeah. But art's an investment. Hopefully. In theory. In theory. If you yeah. buy the right art. Buy your yeah. daughter's art. That's a good investment. Yeah, I think it will be. Alex Kyniston. Check her out. Mm. Okay. Um, well, we don't have a stock of the week because uh, we were drinking whiskey and we don't have uh, – well, Australian whiskey, that's our stock we of the week. No more banter either. We can't yeah, waste no more time banter. on the stock of the yeah. week. Although <laughs> I did buy Commonwealth Bank shares during the week, so that can be stock of the week. Right. And you sold Bendigo, sold Bendigo after yeah. just buying Bendigo. Yeah, probably a month earlier. And uh, I, uh, I went back and had a look at it again and either I made a mistake with the buy line or it's gone back down below its buy line. Right. So, um, yeah, so I sold Bendigo soon after buying it, maybe a month after buying it, and uh, swapped to the next big cap stock on the buy list, which was Commonwealth Bank. So, um, yes, you think you just jumped the gun there. You don't normally buy and sell that quickly, but no. you think you bought and then it seemed to be on it. It's You thought it had uh, turned around sentiment-wise, but then it kept declining, so you just said, okay, I, I you know, jump the gun on that one. Correct. Yeah. I'll just call them up and have a look. You can look from its chart. You can see it kind of goes uh, in an, it's, it's a falling knife, basically, but in the last little while, it's gone up again. It's below the buy line. Right. So, high point was back in January 2017, and then probably that peak there in September would be the next. Well, it hasn't gone peak. above that at all. When, when did you buy it? Yeah, that's what I thought. So, I think I either made a mistake or it's dropped back from last month being up a bit high. Oh, mid-month. It might have done one of those yeah. things where it went up and then came back. Yeah, I think that's the case. Right. Yeah, but it's now back below the the buy line. And it's also, I think, also below the sell line too, which is the other reason why I got out of it. Right. Let me just have a look. Because so it's got one of these COVID uh, yeah, sort of, cell lines. Yeah, it's gone below the sell line as well. Right. Which it just crossed recently in the last couple of weeks. So CBA, stock of the week. Yep. Big bank. I think bank stocks are on the improve. Right. Lots of them coming up onto our buy list now. I think with uh, with people not being as affected by COVID because of government stimulus, that's um, certainly helped mortgage repayments. The banks took lots of provisions mm. against that, which they're now writing back. 
And I think if interest rates do rise, that will benefit the banks as well. But all that aside, they're they're flooding our buy list at the moment. Right. Just purely on their numbers? On their numbers, yeah. Yeah. Okay, well, we've got a ton of questions this week, and one of them just came in this morning on Facebook, and um, I am going to uh, give it a boost up the list because it's uh, slightly controversial, and, uh, you know, that's always good like that. So Chris posted on our Facebook group, how is your QAV portfolio performing? I've been running a QAV portfolio for just under 12 months. However, I've been struggling to track overall portfolio performance as I've been injecting cash at multiple times along the way. I know the performance of individual stocks since purchase, but it's not as simple to track overall portfolio performance as, say, Cam's dummy portfolio, which started with a set $20,000 of capital. Anyway, I finally got around to entering all my historic trades into a QAV portfolio and Stock Doctor, which has generated a time-weighted return and a dollar-weighted return since I started. Like a few other club members, I kicked off my portfolio just after the COVID cough. It's been an interesting time since the 3rd of April last year. My QAV portfolio has returned 35.6% as a time-weighted return or 29.62% as a dollar-weighted return, not bad for just under 12 months. However, I've also benchmarked against the All Ords Total Return Index, which, as you will see from my Stock Doctor portfolio chart below, has returned 40.02% for the same period, so higher than his QAV portfolio. Right, yeah. Um, so his question is, uh, you know, what's up with that? How come his QAV portfolio hasn't outperformed the total return index. Isn't double market. Yeah, well, it isn't even meeting the benchmark. So we went back and looked at the QAV portfolio from the end of March 2020, around about the same time that Chris is talking about, through to the end of February 2021, which is the last time I did our end of month uh, numbers. According to that, the QAV portfolio since the end of March 2020 through to the end of February 2021 is up 72% versus the All Lords Total Return Index up 39% in the same period, which is about the same as what Chris said. Mm. I think he's probably calculating those numbers as of today, so right. he's got a couple more weeks in there, which is counts for the other percent. Um, and so... What's different? What's different, yes. Yeah. I, I think the difference is, um, um, without knowing the detail, I think the Stock Doctor portfolio is, is assuming that you invested... 100% of your portfolio on day one. And so it's giving you the all odds performance as if it was 100% invested, which is the 40%. But I'm thinking that looking at what Chris said in the, his question, uh, he hasn't been 100% invested from day one. So it looks like maybe he had $10,000 in day one and put another $10,000 in three months later and again and again. So the later investments are going to drag his performance down because you're only getting three months correct return yeah. on those or six yeah. months or whatever, right? And the COVID cough was the bottom of the market. So yeah. if he had been fully invested there, he would have got a higher return. Yeah. So you're comparing kind of like an, uh, a slow drip average investment over that time period with everything invested on day one for the all odds. So that's yeah. why it's, it's different. Which is why with the QAV portfolio, like we started the show early 2019, but you'll note in the portfolio that I do my first end of month comparison uh, after September 2019 because it wasn't until September 
2019 that we had fully invested the original 20,000 uh, pretend capital that we had set aside for. It took us six months to <laughs> – that's how hard it was to find uh, stocks back in we, 2019. We buying and selling Apollo. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and also it was in the late stages of this massive bull run the market had. Yeah. There wasn't as many yeah. buying opportunities pre-COVID. Yeah. Um, and so, it took us until the, that was our first reporting season was that August reporting season too. Yes. So there was that too. Yeah. So, um, you know, what could Chris do to get maybe a, a better comparison between his portfolio and the all odds? I think if he goes, I'm assuming he's fully invested now, so he could start comparing it from when he was fully invested would be the first way to do it. Well, he's probably never fully invested. If he, if, if somebody's taking you know, a paycheck and putting it in, yeah, the, they're never fully invested. The only other way to do it then is to take portions. So compare, like if if he had 10000 in for the first two months, compare that performance to the All Lords. Yep. And then if he had another 10000 so he's got 20000 invested, compare that to that next period of All Lords yep. and, and just kind of wait it yep. over that time. Yeah, right. And then to explain it a bit further, he asked questions about the difference between time-weighted and dollar-weighted. Yep. So most personal investors use dollar-weighted or sometimes called money-weighted, which basically means it's the starting – it's the – sorry, the finishing amount of money for the year minus the starting over the starting, and that gives you the percentage return. Now, in, in portfolios that are going up like, – sorry, where there's more money coming in or money coming in and going out, that's going to be affected by those movements. And so that's where time waiting comes in, which is usually what big fund managers use because there could be a big redemption this quarter, which affects their, their, the amount of money in the fund, which affects their performance figures, which makes them look bad. So they they generally try and um, do time waited, which means you take the period where there was no money ins or money outs, get a return for that, take the next period, which might be two or three months, where there's money out and compare that until there's next money in comes in. And so you get this sort of maybe half a dozen different time periods where you add up the returns and then average that for the 12 months. Right. So it's kind of trying to take out the ins and outs that aren't due to share market performance or investing performance. They're due to money sloshing around. Right. So not really useful for most of us in no. terms of calculating our Correct. returns. Right. And then I did want to talk about uh, the calculation for CAGA, Compound Annual Growth. Just let me call up. You can Google it, um, just Google CAG, CAGA formula. And uh, so compound annual growth rate. So this is more useful if you had your portfolio for a long period of time because if you just did the the start, the finishing position minus the starting position over the starting position, that's going to give you like an average over the number of years you've been in. But you, you really want to know to compare to things like the odds, what the what the the averages being per annum over that time period. Right. And so the formula is the final amount over the beginning amount raised to the power of one over the number of years that you've been invested for minus one. It sounds complicated, but basically it's taking into account the, the, the time effect over the period. By the way, if you can hear any banging in the background, that's renovations going on next door. Yeah, sorry about that. At least it stopped bucketing down outside. We don't have the uh, rain hitting the window thing now. Mm. All right. Well, uh, I hope that helps. Uh, uh, who is this? Chris. Chris. Maybe um, if you want to shoot me an email, Chris, if you need help working that out, Tony and I can help you work it out and maybe try and do more of a um, uh, side-by-side comparison, apples-for-apples apples comparison, see how you look.
another question from Glenn. Uh, hi, Cameron. Just wondering with MAH, I noticed that on Friday the price dropped to 20 cents. When I looked at the daily trade data, it was interesting to see that at 3.59 p.m. they had approximately $965,000 of trades at a minimum of 21 cents. Then from 4.10 p.m., they had 5.6 million trades, all at 20 cents. Their average day trade amount is usually $500,000. It prompted me to check any announcements, and I found that on the 12th of March, 21, they announced they were being removed from the S&P 300 index, effective prior to open on Monday. So uh, my thoughts were the institutional S&P 300 index funds had to sell out their holdings. Mm-hmm. Not sure if this is a question for Tony, but was intrigued about this event and the trade volumes. Hope these questions make sense. Is removable from an index a macroeconomic event that doesn't impact on the intrinsic value of the company? Correct. It is, yeah. It is? Yeah. Not. It's got nothing to do with the company itself. It's got to do with the market cap of the company. Right. So just uh, this company happens to be on the cusp of an index, you know, between the 300 being in the index or outside of the 300 index. Yeah. Uh, which is just, you know, circumstance really, not to do at all with the, with the company itself. So uh, when they ranked the top 300 companies again this quarter, that one fell, fell out. Fell yeah, out. and so, Afterpay ends up in there. Yeah, and in the top, top 10 or whatever. Yeah, yeah and it's, it needs to, you know, something needs to get pushed out. Correct. It doesn't yeah. matter. It's got nothing to do with how well or they're doing as a business. Or not. Correct. Yeah. Yeah, it's about size. Yeah. But it does raise a good point. You could you could check before you buy to see if there is uh, an index reweighting coming up, and they generally occur uh, on the quarter, March, September, etc. Right. Uh, so it, it, generally, though, I find it goes the other way for our our stocks, as they're generally rising and they go into the index, mm-hmm. and we get a boost. But this is one where it didn't happen that way. In thirty years, how many times have you seen it gone this way? M A H. Yeah, one. There's probably some other ones, ones, but yeah, I haven't right. seen that much at all. So it's not a common thing, but it is something you could put in a checklist and test for. You could. Yeah. And I've also seen cases where they come out of the index and it doesn't make any difference to the share price. So maybe before you buy, you can uh, check their announcements and see if there's anything like this showing up. Yep. Definitely. That's that's worth doing. Um, And it's got to do with the market cap and average daily trader too. So this one, I know in the question there, Chris said average daily trader was 500,000. Stock Doctor is showing 200,000. Right. So if someone traded $5 million on Friday, yeah, it's going to crunch it down. Yeah. But it, that these sort of things tend to be short term. So yes, yeah. yes, there is uh, less buys in the market for the stock now, but that'll just mean the price is depressed and it becomes even a stronger buying opportunity for other people. Yeah. Reversion to the mean. Yep. We would expect. Yeah. So look, it's not something I worry about normally. Right. Thanks, Glenn. This one's from Mark. Hi, Cam. DSK is an interesting addition to the buy list. It only has six months of data. How does Tony make buy decisions in such cases? Yeah, well, DSK was when I made Stock of the Week a little while ago, and uh, it's a a retailer of uh, smelly bath bombs and, you know, the soaps and things, which my daughter was addicted to when she used to live with us. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, and probably still is. But, um, yeah, it's it's listed uh, towards the end of last year, which means we have their six monthly figures soon after listing, which is a nice thing to have. Oftentimes you have to wait until the next, you know, for maybe six months until you get their figures coming out. Uh, so, yeah, you can't do a full checklist on them. So you can't do things like um, six PEs or uh, six, six uh, sorry, six 
the halves of increasing equity, mm-hmm. but you can still do the rest of them, price to operating cash flow, dividend yield, all those kinds of things, director's holdings. Uh, so it's a it's an abbreviated checklist, but it's still worth worthwhile and still worth investing on. And this DSK reminds me of when Colston emerged out of uh, West Farmers and listed on the stock exchange by itself. Same thing, we had only six months to go on, but it was a buy on the checklist and, and has done well since then. Right. So you just look at it like you would any other stock, look at the numbers, yeah. et cetera. So if you recall, the checklist um, not only adds up the numbers, but it works out how many things you have scored. So you get a, a percentage of the scoreable universe, I guess. Right. Yeah. So the fact that it doesn't have a consistently increasing equity score or a yeah. lowest dividend score just nets out at the end of the maths. Lowest um, PE, yeah. Correct, yeah. What did I say? Dividend. PE, yeah. yeah. Thank you. Gary says, uh, on the checklist for new three-point upturn since last report in the manually entered data tab, does Tony score a zero or leave blank after current reporting season is so new or still looks back to previous reports? So I think what Gary's saying is if the reports just come out uh, in February, mm-hmm. uh, and we're looking at it a week later. Mm-hmm. Uh, what time frame are we looking at for the recent upturn? Yeah, I'm going back to February, so basically from the end of January. So the reporting period, the most recent reporting period. So it's now 22nd of March. I'll look at the graph and whether it's gone up or not since February, since the start of February. Start of February. Yeah. So the 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 end of the period closes in December. Yep. Um, Figures around in February. Right. So it's the start of February is what I'll use. Start of February. Yeah. Right. And that's because um, even though there's supposed to be continuous disclosure, uh, confession season can release data before the, the figures are out, and that usually happens in the last weeks of January, first weeks of February. Mm. And so I'll go back to the, at that end of end of the start of the month of the reporting season. So start of February and start of August. And what we're trying to find here is if uh, the stock has suddenly changed direction, Correct. Gone up, uh, j- jumped up after the new figures have come out, Correct. we want to get in on that. Correct, mm. yeah, exactly. Or at least give them an extra point for that. Correct. Mean, yeah. We don't make a buying decision based on that alone, mm-hmm. but, you know, everything else is looking good. That gives it an extra tick. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Gary. Petra, question about share buybacks. I've noticed S32 has put out a lot of announcements about buying buying back its shares throughout March. They seem to relate to an earlier announcement of its intent to buy back shares over a longer time period. Can Tony please unpick what is going on generally when a company does a share buyback over what period these can relate to, whether this is something which should be considered, how to find older intentions of share buybacks, which may not be on the ASX announcements anymore, but can still be exercised, and then specifically what S32 might be looking to achieve. Mm, so they're, they're looking to achieve an increase in the shareholders' returns. So a share buyback won't change the underlying company. But the directors have looked around and said, we have this much free cash to allocate this year to spend. We can invest it in buying another mining company. We can invest it in replacing our mining equipment um, or expanding our drilling. Uh, or we can buy back our shares. And they've said that the best use of our capital or, or to allocate our best way to allocate our capital is to buy back our own shares. Now, why is that a good thing? Well, it's a good thing because there's um, there's less shareholders in the market getting a share of dividends, getting a share of the um, the earnings per share. So that all goes up. 
And all, thing, all things being equal, having less shareholders means the share price is improving as well. So a uh, couple of things. Petra might want to go back and read Warren Buffett's The Other Shareholders, the most recent one, where he talks about Berkshire Hathaway buying back its own shares. And he's said in the past that if he's buying shares in Berkshire Hathaway, it's a, it's a good indication that he thinks it's undervalued. So people should be buying shares in Berkshire Hathaway. So that's the first thing. The fact that the directors of South 32 are buying shares in South 32 suggests that they think it's a good value. Um, and then and they have confidence in the future of the company, otherwise they'd be wasting their money as well. Uh, and Warren Buffett also spoke about his, his 5% stake in Apple, which has become, I think, 7% over time. Even though he's outlaid no more cash, there's been buybacks by Apple and they've cancelled the shares, so he now has a bigger stake in it. So he's creeping up the register without um, spending any money, which is a good thing too if you're a shareholder. So I read that in Warren's report, and what I don't really understand is I, I kind of get it for a, from a Berkshire perspective. Berkshire is an investment company, and why they would say, well, the best investment we can make right now is in our own stock. Mm-hmm. But for a company like a mining company like S32, why is that the best thing for them to do with their money as opposed to buy a mine or, I don't know, build well, new facilities? Yeah, I'm guessing, well, it, they've looked around and said that's the best thing to do. So I'm guessing that like a lot of the other mining companies that are on our buy list, they're all benefiting from the upturn in commodity prices in the last few months. And so I'm guessing that the, the mining companies to, that they might want to acquire are becoming more expensive. So they said, no, we're not going to buy any. Uh in terms of where they are in their own business, I'm not sure, but but uh, they they would be comparing, say, expanding a mine and what the what the value of that might be over time versus uh, buying their own shares at the moment, and and so they've just done a simple calculation and think it's better to buy their own shares. But why is that a good thing for them to buy their own shares? How does that make it a better business? Doesn't affect the underlying business, so. Uh, they'll still be the same number of mines. They'll still pump out the same gold, silver, whatever they're doing. Uh, but it's better for shareholders. So if you think about the coffee shop example, so the directors of South 32 are working behind the counter at the coffee shop. They own it. They have lots of money coming in, coming in because the coffee shop's going great. But they look around and they say, well, we don't need to replace the cappuccino machine. We don't need to, the place had a paint last year. We don't need to spend money on improving how it looks. Uh, but I've got this cash. I can put it in the bank. I can go and try and buy a competitor down the street. But the coffee shops are booming now, so it's not the right time to buy them. Uh, or I can go to my 10 shareholders with me, 10 partners, and say, does anyone want to sell? And if I spend my money doing that, then the other nine that um, are left have a bigger share of the profits from the coffee shop. And therefore, the next time someone gets bought out, it has to be for a high price. So when when a company does a share buyback, they are literally eliminating those shares. Correct. They are. They're buying them and cancelling them. Right. Yeah. So the existing shareholders own a greater share of the company, therefore they get a bigger profit distribution. Mm-hmm. And the company would do this because they have a fiduciary responsibility to do what's best for the shareholders? They do. They're supposed to act in the best interest of shareholders. Right. And if they conclude that reducing the number of the shares on the market is the best thing they mm-hmm. can do to financially reward their shareholders, that's what they do. Correct. Yeah. Right. So it's, usually, it's generally seen as a good thing. If uh, Under the continuous disclosure laws, they have to announce that they're thinking about it. 
So that's why they put out an announcement saying in the next six to 12 months, we're going to consider buying our shares back. And then they tell you, they usually announce it afterwards after they bought them back, how much they bought and at what price. And this can go on for a long period of time. Petra's asking, how do you find out if this is something that they're you know, maybe announced uh, six months ago or a year. Mm. What you just have to look back over the announcements. You do, yeah. And w- would you bother? No, normally because no. it's, it's a good thing, right? It's a good thing, yeah. Yeah, exactly. yeah, right. And again, um, it's certainly the case that companies I invest in, I probably shouldn't say regularly, but often have share buybacks because the directors also can see the value in the companies. You're buying it when it's undervalued. Mm-hmm. They realise it's undervalued. Mm-hmm. so And just like uh, sometimes the companies we buy get taken out by somebody else yeah. for the same reason. They somebody else undervalued. Spots, spots the value. Yeah. yeah, And it's actually a good takeover defence too. If, if the directors of South 32 didn't do something to lift the share price, then yeah. they could be taken out. Yeah. yeah. Hope that uh, makes sense, Petra. Here's one from Alice. Alice says, hi, I recall in a previous podcast, Tony mentioning about DPS versus EPS, um, donuts per <laughs> salesman versus what's, what's dividends per share. Dividend per share versus earnings per share. Correct, yeah. And he said that if DPS is greater than EPS, this is a red flag. There are a couple of stocks on the buy list where DPS and EPS are nearly the same. AX1 has a DPS of $0.12 and EPS of $0.13.78. And FBU has a DPS of $0.954 and an EPS of $0.927. Is this a cause for concern? Not necessarily. I mean, it's not something I like, but... uh some companies get run like an infrastructure type company, and what I mean by that is, if you look at there was a uh, this a company called Australian Pipeline Trust, which is I think still listed. It may have been taken out by an overseas buyer, but anyway, for a long time, all that, all that company does is pump gas from one part of Australia to another part of Australia, and so the directors of that company realise they're not going to get great growth out of it, but it's profitable, so they pay out most of their their income in dividends as a way of getting money back to shareholders. And so that's an infrastructure-type company. That's often how they're run. So sometimes a company like AX1 or FBU is managed as if it was an infrastructure-type company. So what it's basically saying is the directors have formed the view that they're not seeing much growth in the industry, so they're paying out their, their profits as dividends. I don't like that because I think companies should be reinvesting in themselves. Again, it's, a, it's kind of a vote that the company's not worth... Um, investing in because the, the, the directors aren't taking their money and putting it back into the company. They're taking it and giving it as dividends to shareholders. So I'm not a real fan of that. If I look at um, AX1, which is a, a shoe retailer, the Accent Group, I'm just going to go back over their history. They Sometimes this can be a short-term thing. I just want to check that out. So uh, where are we? Earnings per share. So I'm in Stock Doctor at the moment. I'm in the, um, the uh, financial statements section and I should see payout ratio here somewhere if I can just find it for a minute dividends dividend payout ratio so yeah it's uh, AX1 paid out near enough to 86% and then it's been around that sort of 85 to 90% for as long as we can go back uh, so it's it's a high dividend yielding company, but they're not putting money back into the company, which I don't think is a great thing. Now, they could be doing it by borrowings or capital raisings, but that's, again, a strange way of doing it. So as much as it scores on the checklist, it's not a company that I particularly like for that reason. 
Can you explain the dividend payout? Well, that's the end of the free episode for this week. For the brand new folks, I want you to know that each week we have a free episode and a premium episode. Free episode runs about half an hour. Premium episode usually runs for an extra half hour to an hour, depending on how many questions we have from our audience that week, because we spend a lot of that time answering questions. Uh, If you want to check out the premium episodes, you can go up to our website, qavpodcast.com.au, and sign up for the two-week free trial. You get to have a look at the uh, premium episodes, you get to have a look at the checklist, the getting started guide, all of the video content that we have. Uh, You get invited to our VIP dinners and our VIP Zoom calls for club members. You get to ask Tony questions that we can answer. You get to get invited to our uh, Facebook group, our private Facebook group, etc., etc. And also we get a a private uh, club member newsletter each week we send out as well with some stuff in it. So check that out qavpodcast.com.au but as i said if you're brand new and you want to you're trying to figure out what's going on go back and listen to season three episodes one three and five 301 303 and 305 and then you might also want to go back and listen to season one as well all of the free episodes in season one where we go into a lot of detail about tony's system and methodology and figure out if this is right for you if it's something that you want to go further with if you want to learn how to invest like Tony does, then you can check out the uh, QAV Club. Uh, the other thing I always have to say is we're not financial advisors, so don't take anything you hear on this as financial advice. This is just here to teach how one guy invests and thinks about investing. If you need financial advice or tax advice, please go see a financial advisor or a tax advisor. Uh, with that, stay safe, good luck with your investing, and we'll be back next week.